and we are into 2 Samuel chapter 9. So we're going to read the whole chapter, 13 verses, but let's read that. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness, uh, show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's, he is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. The king, David, sent, sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Oh, sorry, did I read that again? No, it's just the same verse, I'm sorry. And, uh, sorry, now I lost my spot. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table." Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet." So, chapter 9. So we skipped over chapter, chapter 8, and what happens in chapter 8 is right after David has received his covenant from God, God has that, the Davidic covenant, I'll always be with your offspring and so on, um, David then goes and he subdues the last of the remaining bits of his enemies, and, uh, and then we hear that he has assembled his cabinet, his government. And from there, now that everything is nice and clear and settled, he now turns his attention again to something else, and this is to Mephibosheth to a covenant. He's going to honor a covenant he had with Jonathan. And there's a lot of scholars here who, would, who take this chapter, and they're very cynical. And I don't mind being a little cynical, because humans are rotten. So sometimes the motives of even David are, are broken. But I don't think there's necessarily an ulterior motive to David's kindness here. Some people do. They say, you know, David is just bringing Mephibosheth in because he wants to keep a close eye on a rival. You know, keep him close. So if he's going to start a coup or a rebellion, I can keep him close. Or maybe he's doing it to appease the northern part of the land that loves Saul still. So they have a lot of, you know, they look at these things and they question, and, you know, how much could David possibly love him? He didn't even, didn't even know he was alive. So there's some, some cynicism. I'm not so sure there's a, this is a time for cynicism. I think that what we're seeing here is David and Mephibosheth having this dialogue and having this relationship and we're meant to see in it something of how we come to God. There's reason, I think, in the text to see that you and I are Mephibosheth. And then we become David. 
in a way. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. But this is a relationship. And I think it reveals things about you and I. It reveals specifically our powerlessness, our personhood, and then our position. Okay, so let's go through those things. Powerlessness, personhood, and position. So, first, powerlessness. Um, there's this very famous Johnny Cash song called When the Man Comes Around. And he's a Johnny Cash fan would know it. And here is the, one of the verses. Let's put it up on the screen. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks till Armageddon no shalom and no shalom. Then the father hen will call his chickens home. The wise men will bow down before the throne and at his feet they'll cast their golden crowns when the man comes around. If is Johnny, you can hear Johnny Cash? Anybody else? So in that verse, what, what Cash is getting at is this idea that there's goads. You know what a goad is? It's a stick. It's a staff with a pointy end. And it was used primarily for oxen because oxen can't be ridden. They can be steered, but you need something pokey. You know, you got to stick them and drive them in a certain direction. And what, the, what, what is he's getting at here, and he's quoting parts from Acts 26 and parts of Revelation. And what he's saying is this. Life and God in your life is acting like a goad. He is through all of your experiences, your troubles, your trials, your triumphs, goading you into a certain direction to see life and him a certain way. And only a fool wouldn't follow the goading and then do what is the logical conclusion of life, which is cast your golden crown before the king. That's the idea. That God is trying to get us all to do that, to cast our crowns. Hence the name of the sermon. Now, Mephibosheth is a prime example of, having, of a person who has learned what it means to obey the goads. You see, Mephibosheth has a privilege you and I may not have. Life has beaten him up. Mephibosheth is under no illusions that he has power in this, in this culture or in any way. And that's because he was royal, but now he's basically a rebel because he's part of the losing group, right? He's a solide, they'd call him. So now he's an enemy. He was royal, now he's an enemy. So, so much for position and status. It's fleeting. He was rich, now he's poor. He was healthy, but then his nurse dropped him. Chapter 4, you could find that out. She dropped him when she heard about Jonathan and Saul's death. She ran out with him to escape the, what presumably was the oncoming invasion from the Philistines. And she drops him when he's five years old, and he ends up being crippled. So he loses his health. He can't trust his health in any way. He was honored as the son of the king and the son of the, a prince of, of Israel. And now he's shamed. He was surrounded by friends, and now he's alone. And so he, when he casts his crown off, not literally, but he kneels before David, what he is doing is he is acknowledging his powerlessness. I have no hope. I am in a world that has no social programs to help crippled people. I have, um, I have no, uh, no money. I have no future, no prospects. He's nothing. And so when he physically comes and kneels before David, what he is doing is he is acknowledging, I have nothing. I surrender. And think about how humiliating it is. And humiliating means we think shame like... Uh, but humiliating means humiliation is to admit... Is, uh, humiliation literally means to lower your own view of yourself in your own eyes. So he has to accept what... See, it's harder for us. But for him, he knew he had nothing. He could do nothing to defend himself. He has to answer the king. He can't fight. He has no army. He has no money, no prospects. So he must accept reality. You and I don't have that privilege. We, unfortunately, sometimes have such a great life that we never have to acknowledge we're powerless. 
And there's, it's kind of a silly movie. Well, it's a very silly movie. It's called Monty Python's Holy Grail. If anyone's seen it. Um, I haven't watched it in years, so can't quote me on everything here. But there's this one scene. What, what happens in here is King Arthur is out looking for the Holy Grail. And at one point, he stumbles upon the Black Knight. And the Black Knight stands in his way. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, there he is. And he wants the Black Knight to join his forces because he's such a valiant soldier. But the Black Knight says, I will not. We'll fight instead. So they fight. King Arthur, uh, and if it wasn't so comical, it would be gruesome. He chops off both his arms and his legs. Now, this knight, when he gets his arm chopped off, says, it's just a flesh wound. It's okay. I'll keep going. He loses the other one. He says, just a scratch. He loses his legs, and eventually he says, I'll bleed all over you. You know, I'll, 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 I'll bite you if I have to. But he won't surrender. He refuses. And this, I, I watched it again this week, and I thought, I watched that scene anyway. And I thought, boy, we do that. We don't like to surrender. We'll do anything but surrender. You know, we have enough money that if something goes wrong in one account, we can shift it from a line of credit. We don't need to admit we've lost. We don't need to admit our powerlessness. And yet, this is exactly what Mephibosheth is forced to do and what you and I are being called to do. The difficulty for you and I is believing that Isaiah 64 is right when it says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like, well, the King James would say, filthy rags. It's hard to believe it. Because if that's the case, things are going pretty well for our lives generally. So it's so difficult. But Mephibosheth didn't have that. You see, he wasn't just in a spot. Sometimes we look down on people and we'll say, he's struggling, she is struggling because they're not working hard. Because whatever. We have these ideas. They can just get themselves up if they could pull up their own bootstraps. You know, pull themselves up. The lesson here is not that Mephibosheth needed to work harder. It's that he's dead. And so are you. You can't work any harder. Corpses can't. That's just the way it is. And Mephibosheth understood this about himself. Now, like it, he may have been forced to, but he seems to have understood it. And you and I will read this passage, and you'll think, and so will I at first, think that you're being told to be like David, that we're supposed to show mercy and so on, which we are, but not before you're Mephibosheth. Before you can exercise the mercy of David, you must embrace the powerlessness of Mephibosheth. Because mercy is a crownless act. Because if I start showing mercy to people without realizing that I myself require mercy daily, then I'm prone to thinking in time, maybe it's latent, maybe no one will ever say it to you and you'll never know it. But I'm prone to thinking, I have figured out life, this person hasn't, so I am going to help them. I figured out how to have a great marriage, so I'm going to help this couple struggling. I figured out how to make money and save it, so I'm going to help this poor imbecile who's never known how to save money in his life. So if we're not careful, we work and we serve out of a place of pride, and so the mercy does nothing for you but make you more proud. We need to become like Mephibosheth and realize that I am only helping, I am only in a place to show mercy because I am constantly being shown mercy by God. And so if you rush, if we rush too quickly and say, be David, without saying, you are Mephibosheth, you're going to become a tyrant of a person. Maybe not publicly, but in your own heart. And so we must embrace this powerlessness that we're being shown here. That's the first thing. Second thing is personhood. Imagine Mephibosheth's terror. Um, I don't know why I'm laughing, but I'm trying to imagine. I, would, I probably wouldn't have answered the call. I would have packed up and left. But if you are a rebel, and you know most of your family has been killed by David, 
or by, if you're in the war or through, and you'll see later in the book as well, David is ruthless about rooting out his enemies. You then get a phone call, well, or a tele, whatever, a messenger, that says, hey, I know you were part of Saul's family. Would you mind coming to see the king? What does that mean? How, does that make you feel like you're probably scared, right? Mephibosheth is clearly scared when he comes, but, which is why David tells him, don't be afraid. But even more so, more so than being afraid, I think what is on display here is his shame. The shame Mephibosheth feels. So, do you know what his name is? In 1 Chronicles, we're told that his name isn't Mephibosheth, but Meribael. And almost every scholar I consulted will say, yeah, that's his real name. But somewhere along the line, people started calling him Mephibosheth, which means from the mouth of shame. Because in the ancient culture, People who were disabled or deformed were not well looked at, were not well received. In fact, there's this wonderful book by a guy named Robert Garland. We'll put it on the screen. I've only read chunks of it. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read chunks of it. Um, and it's, well, there it is up there. It's called Eye of the Beholder, Deformity and Disability in the Greco-Roman World. And in it, he points out a few things. He says, one, deformity and disability was actually incredibly common in the ancient world. Very common, because things weren't safe. There was no health and safety standards. Um, health, uh, nutrition was terrible, so people had all sorts of issues related that way. Um, and there was this excavation done at uh, Metapontum, which is a place in uh, southern Italy. 233 skeletons were exhumed from the Greco-Roman time. 56% of them had bone pathology, which is diseases, or fractures that would have led to limps, because you couldn't put a cast on it, right? So if you break a bone, if you survive, you're going to limp forever. So 56% of those people had some sort of issue with their, their skeletal structure. So it was very common, and yet, says Garland, it was highly stigmatized. If you were disabled in any way, you were seen as unfavored by God, because why else would you be doing that? Because God is a tit-for-tat God. It's the Job syndrome, Job's friends, right? You're like that because you've done something wrong. They were shamed, they were ridiculed, they were used for entertainment. You see that all through the royal courts, surely. And so, Ziba, the servant, even shows up. And do you notice something in this passage? Nobody says Mephibosheth's name until David says it. He says, is there someone? He says, there's a cripple. There's this cripple. So even in the ancient world, we find what we say today, which is to our shame, that we identify people with their disability. It's not a person, it's a cripple, right? It's not a person, it's a homosexual. It's all these, see, we do this, we, what we do is we label people based on how they are different from you and I. That's what we do. And when David shows up and he says, Mephibosheth, that's all he says. It's impressive because this is why. David is recognizing a person there, not just an ailment. He and this is, I think, quite profound, because he's not just doing that, but David, in doing so, is identifying something. If we label people based on their ailment, because it's different than us, then what David is seeing is something of the gospel in advance that says, well, what's really, it's not so unique, because he may be disabled, but as he comes before the king, helpless and powerless, disabled, you and I, and David knows himself to be a sinner from the birth, right? We know that from his Psalms. He's saying, I'm no different than Mephibosheth because he's not different. We share a common sinfulness. And so we're exactly the same. So what David sees is the need. I don't see anything else, but you, you have a, a need and I can help. 
And so David recognizes this personhood, that he is a person, not broken legs, whatever, we don't know exactly what was wrong with Mephibosheth. And he realizes this, and you see at this outset, right away, David's showing something called hospitality. Hospitality in the Greek is the word philoxenia, or philoxenia. Philo, love, xenia, stranger or outsider. So hospitality isn't taking your best friend and showing him a good time, though that's good. Hospitality is taking the person who's outside and making them feel like insiders. Taking, that's what, and the reason you do it all through the Old Testament is because you, Israel, were outsiders and I treated you like an insider. And so what David is doing is he's saying, look at this outsider. Because of my covenant with Jonathan, I'm going to treat him like an insider. I'm going to bring him in. It's the very root of hospitality and it's going to get more profound in, in, the, second, in the third part. So he takes that. What does it look like then? So he has this person. He's got this need. David takes him, acknowledges the person. And the sort of person that David thinks Mephibosheth to be is revealed on how he treats him, by what he does for him, what the mercy looks like. And what does it look like? This brings us to the final point, which is our position before God and so on. So the Bible's continual claim is this. Those of us or those in our community who are outside of social protection, so they're not protected by the laws and by the systems, or those who are disadvantaged by them, are to be the peculiar and particular concern of those of us inside. So that if we have a position of privilege in any way, it's our job to look after those who, for whatever reason, are underprivileged. In whatever way that is, it could be, well, any number of things. And so David realizes that his privileged position as king is not to be used to secure his own place alone, but to now give it away and raise someone up to his level. Okay, That's what he's doing. He's, taking, he's bearing the burden of raising Mephibosheth up to a level where he can be healthy, happy, have a future, and so on. And look at what he does. First of all, I think you have to see this scene as intentionally trying to make us think about a, about a meeting between you and God. Yes, it's Mephibosheth and David, but there's reason to think that the writer is saying, think about this as you being Mephibosheth and David and sometimes moving around there. And this is why. What happens all through the Old Testament and the Bible when somebody meets God or an angel or a supernatural being? They're terrified. And the immediate thing that the angel or God says right afterwards is, do not be afraid, fear not. What does David say? don't be afraid. It's the first thing because Mephibosheth is effectively coming to God because he's powerless. He's in the complete control of this king. And so David realizing that he is trembling says, don't be afraid. And why you don't have to be afraid is because I'm going to use my position for mercy rather than for exacting a punishment. This is what mercy is. Mercy is absorbing a debt that you'd rather exact. Mercy is saying, I'll take, the, take it. I'll let a rival live. I will give him lands that are mine, rightfully, and so on, because I want to show him mercy. So he does that right away. Complete power. Next thing he does is he says, I'm not just going to show you some mercy. I'm going to show you kindness. Now, that word kindness we talked about last week, it's the word hesed in Hebrew. When God shows up to David in chapter 7 and says, I will show your offspring, every king of Israel, every king of Judah that comes, that when they are from the line of David, they will be sinners, but I will not remove my hesed, my kindness from them. So when David then turns and turns to Mephibosheth and says, I'm going to show you this hesed, this, this specific sort of love, this loyal love, 
What he is, well, not he's literally saying is that in the mouth of God, hesed is unconditional love. Meaning, it doesn't matter how you treat me, I'm going to treat you as if I loved you. It doesn't matter how you're going to treat me. And David says the same thing to Mephibosheth, the exact same word. So it's an intimacy that is offered only to insiders. Only to insiders. In fact, you know, it's interesting, when Rahab... Uh, helps the Israelites. Remember in, in Joshua 2, if you're, uh, if you're a Christian, you know, and if you're not, in jo- Joshua chapter 2, um, they send spies into Jericho, and these spies meet a prostitute. And Rahab uh, agrees to basically give them information and allow them safe passage. And so if for, her, for her kindness shown them, the Israelite soldiers say, because you've done this, we will show you hesed. And so what's incredible about this is they take this prostitute who's an outsider from Israel and they say, we will make you an insider. But even they do it conditionally. Because you've shown me love, I will show you love. What David is doing here, but he's later going to betray it as well, which is why we have to look beyond David, is he's saying, I'm going to treat you with kindness, Mephibosheth, though you can do nothing for me. What could he do? What could a crippled guy in the ancient world do to help David, the king? Nothing. But he offers this. And the reason he could be trusted, the same reason we can trust God, is precisely because it is unconditional. You see, because if it's conditional, if I go to my wife and say, I will love you so long as you love me. I will be the husband you deserve so long as you are the wife I deserve. If I say that, then it's it's conditional. It means her affection towards me will always be on pins and needles. Did I love him enough? Did I let him watch enough soccer on Saturday? (laughs) Just joking. But you see, it can't be. If it's conditional, it'll always be conditional. It's never, you'll never be secure in a love or in a relationship that's conditional. It must be unconditional. And this is why I think David says it and why it points us to the gospel and why you're going to see in a minute why we have to look to the gospel. He then restores lands and a workforce to him. So he, re, he now improves his social standing. He's no longer a, land, uh, a landless cripple in the ancient world. He now has workers and farms and things. And his one son, Micah, that we're told about, has a future now because of David's kindness. He now can even eat at the king's table, which is honor, honor for an enemy that he's giving him freely again. And remember, this is not a God here. This is David. When he gives honor to a rival, some of his local, some of David's people were probably saying, what are you doing letting this guy eat with us? So David loses some glory amongst his his own people to give some to Mephibosheth. So, all of this, of course, leads us to one thing that's happening here. When it says that he was treated like David's sons, we are being shown adoption. He is taking Mephibosheth into himself as as an adopted parent, essentially. And think about this. And this becomes, adoption becomes the metaphor for our relationship with God through the the New Testament. It's always through Romans and, and Ephesians. It's always about adoption, adoption. Think about it. There's people in the room, and I know, I know many people who have adopted and are in the process of it now. And adoption is an incredible picture. In fact, we're reading a book where a woman says, adoption is the clearest sign of a covenant that we have when we adopt children. But think about what happens in adoption. First of all, it's parent-initiated. So David at the start doesn't, Mephibosheth doesn't come looking for, any, for David. David says, let me go out and help. And in the same way, when it's an adoptive parent, they say, I want a child. I want to help somebody. Let let me go and find the one who needs. It's not the other way around. It's not child-initiated. And this is, again, perfect for the New Testament that says that Christ came into the world to seek 
and save the lost. You didn't choose Christ. It's what he says to the disciples, right? You didn't choose me. I chose you. And this is adoption. It's costly. David has to bear the brunt of raising up Mephibosheth. And if anyone here has ever adopted a child, it's costly. Time, emotion, money, everything. It's costly. It's responsibility. He bears the responsibility for Mephibosheth now, and just as you would for having a child. And in our young adults group, they reminded me of something important. It's not just that you bear the responsibility of raising that child, but you actually take upon yourself their shame. Because when you're in a supermarket, one of the young adults said, you're in a supermarket and you see a kid just having a tantrum. You know what you think? That parent doesn't know what they're doing. I, my kid would never do that. Meanwhile, you don't know that that child wasn't adopted and has any sort of thing, baggage that he or she has come with. And so that parent in the place, while the child is freaking out, is bearing the shame of that. They're not to blame, but they're bearing it in your eyes and my eyes as we scrutinize them. Or if they're on a plane, you ever been on a five, six hour flight with a screaming child? The greatest test of patience ever. But that's what's happening. You bear that. Then there's an identity. When you take a child in, an orphan in, you say, whatever your past was, it's now gone and it's, you have my past. You are now son of Carl, son of whoever. And as a result, my past has become yours. My name has become yours. My wealth has become yours. And then it leads to the next part. You're made an heir. You're made a legitimate heir. And this is why, men and women, let's not quibble over the, the masculine language in the, New, in the Old Testament and New. You are made sons of God. Yes, you're women. Yes, you're daughters. But sons in the ancient world had everything. Daughters had nothing. So when he says, you are made sons and sit at a table as, like sons, he's not saying, he's not trying to be paternalistic. He's not being chauvinistic. He's saying, even though you're a woman in this ancient culture, you are going to be treated as the highest possible honored guest at my table, like a son. And this is what is being shown. And aside from that, it's planned. It's not hasty. It's loving and carefully planned. Now, here's, the, here's where I will really close. David screws it all up. Because David offers this unconditional love, and in a few chapters, you're going to see, and if you're in community groups, you're going to get the question where I ask you to go deeper. You're going to see that in a few chapters, a conspiracy happens, and we're left, scholars are still not sure who's right. Ziba says that Mephibosheth is now looking to get rid of David, and vice versa. They're both, compl- they're both saying, no, the other guy betrayed me. So David withdraws his love from Mephibosheth for a while. He says, I can't, I got to take away the lands. I gotta, he, you'll see if you read it. So he proves to not be the adoptive parent that we all are yearning for. He, and much like you and I, will always let ourselves down, let other people down. But we have God, whose hesed, his love, can't come away. And the reason is found, and I'll just do two things left. One of them is Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. says this, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, why did he adopt you and when? Oh my, I like that. This is very, well, I don't know what happened, but we'll keep going. So why did he adopt you? There it is. (laughs) Um, So why did he adopt 
First, he does it before the foundations of the earth, right? This is what he's saying. Before the foundation of the world, he predestined. He thought you up. He chose you and saved you before you could offer him any good works. So you know his love isn't based on your good record or how well you parented or how great, uh, an, accompl- how great an accomplisher you were. So he chose you before that. So, so in other words, you now know if you screw it all up, he's not going to let you go because he didn't choose you based on your performance. So why would he let you go based on your performance? So that's one. The second thing that's important, which I don't think we talk about enough in evangelical churches, is the last part, to the praise of His glorious grace. Christ saved you because He's showing off how great He is, not how great you are. Everything Christ does for you and I is to draw attention to how much He loves you and how great He is. And so we ought to be a people that never start to think, look at this position, look at the church if it's growing, look at our business, look at our family, and drawing attention to us. We're to remember we are loved purely because God loves you. There's nothing lovable in you. He chose to love you. And that's incredibly important because otherwise you'll be like I was saying about Sarah. You'll always be on pins and needles. Did I tithe enough? Carl gave the talk. Did I tithe enough? Did I serve enough? I haven't served in a long time. Am I doing enough to stay saved? It's the only way you'll get to if you don't see things the way he's saying, which is you did nothing to earn salvation. And I'll really, really close with this quote. Rosaria Butterfield is a, well, it's a, a complex. She was an English professor who was also a very open lesbian who then became a Christian. I talked about her a few weeks ago very briefly. And she's adopted, I don't know how many, at least four children I know of. And of all ages, teenagers, different races, like she's, read her book called Gospel Comes with a House Key and you'll be humbled at how not loving you are compared to Rosaria Butterfield and her husband. But in talking about adoption, she says this, Teenagers placed in foster care feel broken and unwanted. They have told me that they feel like lepers. They need the advocate, Jesus himself. Often they feel marked and shamed, outsiders, rejects. Even the rules of the system work against them. They need grace. We need grace. Contagious grace. And what she means is, I think what you're seeing, which is, you and I have been saved by grace. We've been adopted Let us not look down on people who are struggling with a sin. It may be the most despicable sin there is. You think about what that is for you. And it's easy to despise people, even if they're unrepentant. You think, well, we only love them if they're repented. No, you love them. Christ and repentance, we want to bring them there. But your job isn't to look down on anyone, but instead to say, my goodness, I'm as bad as this wretch. And Christ has forgiven me. Let me now show love to this person, regardless of them. They are not an alcoholic, an adulterer, a cripple, whatever. Put any label you want. They're sons and daughters of the living God. They're just not living that way. Our job is to care for them and to draw them towards repentance if we can. We have to not believe the lie that surrender means death. Mephibosheth didn't think that surrendering, well, he did. He probably thought it was going to be his death. But see, this is what grace, this is why you and I should be contagious in our faith and our love for people. Because we, like Mephibosheth, throw our, ca- our, our crowns down. The reason you throw them down is because when you kneel, you're expecting to get your head cut off. We kneel down expecting the blade, and instead we receive mercy, just like Mephibosheth. And for that reason, when we see the broken of the world, and sometimes we're the broken, well, we are the broken of the world, we then look at them and we say, I, I receive grace. How can I not show them grace? And that becomes the motivation for being the sort of people that we find outlined here. Let's pray.